Well, let's turn to that psalm, Psalm 87. It's my intention over the next uh, little while to to eventually get uh, preached from uh, the book of Hosea. I'm not quite ready to do that yet, Uh, so we'll wait another week and then uh, we'll get to Hosea. But this evening I want us to look at this uh, psalm, um, and uh, before we read it, let's uh, bow our heads in prayer once again. Father, we thank you for uh, the word of God and the glory that it presents to us. Once again, help us to have hearts to understand, ears to hear, eyes to see. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 87. A psalm of the sons of Korah. A song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of our God, Selah. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. There was one, this one was born here. Uh, This one was born there, Selah. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Well, the 20th and 21st centuries have been very difficult for the the church of Jesus Christ in the United Kingdom. We have seen um, unremitting decline, and it's not stopped. Um, It's still very much uh, in decline. The institutional church is declining. We may well give our our reasons for why that's happening. And uh, we may... We may sit here wondering why is, what it is that the, the future holds for us in the church of Jesus Christ. And the temptation for us, I think, is sometimes to look back and, uh, and wonder how things might have been. Uh, sometimes if you're in a situation that you find you don't, uh, you're not sure about and you're wondering why you're here, and it's tempting to look back and think things were so much better to lament days gone by and uh, experiences that we once had and maybe reflect on the fact that maybe they are not what they once were. Uh, that uh, you know, We've had people in our church who, uh, not so much now, but uh, especially older folks, who have talked about days gone by, who talked about the days when churches were full, when Sunday schools had hundreds of children in them. And uh, maybe you can remember listening to your relatives talking in, in such a way. And there's a temptation to think, uh, to look at things as they are now, and to, to think that what we have now is not very good compared to that. I can certainly do that. I can uh, be tempted to do that. As a, as a denomination, as, a, as the EPCW, you've been, been seeking to, to plant churches across England and Wales and parts of Europe. And... Uh, and yet we're so small, I think, you know, this, this is actually slightly out of date, this map here, but we have something like uh, 24 churches. And uh, 
you know, they're not, none of them are particularly big. I've, one of the things I noticed over the years is that while the number of churches has grown, the average number of members of the church has stayed, stayed the same. It's about 50 or so uh, in every church. And it, we seem to kind of struggle to get beyond about 50 people in a church um, on average. And uh, you might think that therefore our, our efforts in church planting are, are rather like standing at the seaside telling the tide not to come in any longer. <laughs> um, it kind of seems like a hopeless task. But of course we, I, I, maybe you don't think like that, maybe, but some people I think might do. And of course we need to learn constantly that our, our thinking needs to be guided by the scriptures. And um, Because what scripture tells us is that, that all history is, is God's history. That uh, there's no history that God's not involved in or knows about. There's not a history, piece of history that God doesn't know about. And to remember that God's plans and purposes are sure and certain. And that at the very center of God's purposes is his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as the church is in Christ, its future and its destiny are absolutely certain. And so Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is a fact. It's a prophecy, but it's also a fact of life. Because God, it comes with divine power behind it. It is going to happen. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We always need to remember that. In the face of the many voices that clamor for our attention in the world, that seek to distract us and to demoralize us and to give us supposedly better alternatives, we need to listen to the scriptures uh, which teach us about sure and certain things. And that big picture, that sure and certain thing, is what this psalm is about. And it serves, I think, to encourage us uh, about the future and about the, the, uh, the, the church and God's people. Uh, John Calvin, writing on this psalm, uh, summarizes the teaching of this psalm as this, the church of God far excels all the kingdoms and politics of the world. And this kingdom will endure uh, when all other kingdoms have fallen away. So we're on the winning side, even though Sometimes it feels like we're not, and it's a struggle. We're on the winning side. Just a few words about the text, um, first of all. And uh, it's a song, and it's a song to be sung, and we've just uh, sung it. Um, and it also indicates that it's uh, a psalm of the, the sons of Korah. You might be wondering, who was who Korah, and who were, who were his sons? And, uh, well, the only significant mention of uh, of Korah is in Numbers chapter 16 but it's not a very promising me- mention because Korah who was a, a Levite uh, the tribe of priests led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and the outcome of that rebellion was judgment the judgment of God where Korah and his followers are swallowed into a hole in the ground uh, a fine ending and, um, however, Numbers 26.11 tells us that the sons of Korah did not die. And they, those sons didn't follow their father, but remained loyal to 
Moses and therefore to God. So you might think, well, this is, is this a psalm that is written by those sons of Korah in the time of Moses? Uh, but the content of the psalm suggests that it was written much later than that. Uh, take, for example, the particular mention of Babylon. Um, in Moses' time, Babylon didn't exist. It certainly was not known as a great and mighty power. And it only came to prominence much later uh, than the Exodus period. In fact, some have suggested that the psalm has been written uh, after the exile to Babylon. And Israel has been allowed to return to Jerusalem. So very much later. And it's written by these uh, sons of Korah. Um, round about the time, perhaps, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, Haggai and Zechariah, and when the temple is being rebuilt after it was destroyed in 586 BC. And if you know anything about that time, you'll know that it was a very difficult time for the people of Israel. Um, some of those people in Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra's time and Nehemiah's time, uh, they had remembered the great days of old when Solomon's temple was still standing and how grand and great it was. Remember the, the kingdom under Solomon and he was able to build this temple and it was a glorious thing. And you had the wisdom of Solomon and all the riches of Solomon and all the people, the kings and queens coming from all over to see the wisdom, hear the wisdom of Solomon and see the riches and see the temple and how glorious the whole thing was. But then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. And now this new temple under being rebuilt under Ezra doesn't seem quite so grand. So here's the psalm speaking into that situation. The sons of Korah, uh, not the immediate sons of Korah, of course, but the the descendants of Korah who have this this job of leading the people in singing, of writing the songs under the, the guidance of God. And this song teaches them about the city of God. In the midst of all the trials they're facing, all the misery that they've experienced, To to think together about the city of God that God is building. And so that's what I want to think with you this evening about. Uh, Three things about this city. Firstly, it's God's city. It may seem obvious, but you know, it's God's city. Secondly, it's a city of new birth. And then thirdly, it's a city of life and joy. So it's first of all, it's a it's God's city. And that city is centered around Jerusalem, of course. It's, uh, it's not mentioned explicitly, but Zion is mentioned. The Lord loves, verse 2, the gates of Zion. And Zion is much more than simply a geographical location. You know, when you speak about Rome, you can speak about that city on the seven hills and you know, in the middle of Italy. Uh, or you could speak about the power of the empire. You see, so you've got a geographical location. Or you've got this idea of a power. And Zion is kind of like that. It's not just a location. It's a power. It's, a, it's about a, an idea. It's a concept. Uh, this great city. And what becomes clear in this psalm, and we'll deal with this more in the next point, is that it's about the people 
who make up the city. So it's not really concerned about the buildings or the geographical location at all. And it's much more about a people gathered or who will be gathered into a city. And so Zion presents to us a a glorious vision for the future of the people of God. And actually it's about the church of, of God. Now look, look with me about what, this, what God does for this city. And there's a few things here that are worth pointing out. still under this heading of God, is God's city. First of all, it is a city or a, a people that God has founded. That he has laid the foundations for. You see, it's God who builds the church. It is God who gives it stability and certainty. It is he who guarantees the church, that guarantees that Zion will endure forever. And friends, this, this is vitally important for us to remember. We might be, be tempted in church life to, to think that the, the future of the church depends on us. And therefore, we are building the church. And if we do not do it, then the church will not exist. And of course, if the church does depend on us, then... It has no future. But it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on Christians. It depends on God. It is God who builds his church. It depends on his son, Jesus Christ. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He himself is the foundation of the church and ensures that it will survive. This uh, very son of God that was, is, is to come from the vantage point of the, the psalm is the, is the one who's going to give himself sacrificially in his death uh, so that this city, this church, might be built. Now, this is a, an enormously beautiful city. It's, I don't know if you've ever paid attention to Psalm 48, um, but it's you don't have to turn to it, but Psalm 48 is a, a curious psalm because it extols the virtues of Jerusalem and the city. And it invites us to go around and, and look at all the parapets and look at the walls and see how wonderful it all is. And uh, you think, yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's just a wee city in, in some unknown country in the Middle East. But what that psalm does for us is it reminds us, it takes us into the idea not of the, the geographical location, but the idea of Zion. And so in taking us around the walls and enabling us to look at the walls and to pay attention to the, the glory of it all, the, the earthly glory of it all, we're invited to think God's glory in his church is marvelous. And to reflect on that to get a sense of the beauty of his work. So it's a a city that God has founded. Uh, The second thing about this city, this city that is God's, is that the Lord loves the gates of Zion, verse 2. He loves the city. He loves the people that are in the city. And he doesn't love these people because they're intrinsically lovable. 
um, they aren't. You know, they are a, a stiff-necked, proud, rebellious, grumbling, complaining, sinful people. Uh, we're, isn't it good we're so much better now? <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. We're not any better today, are we? We're still a stiff-necked, proud, rebellious, grumbling, complaining, sinful people. Yet, God loves that city. He loves every single one of you and me. Why? Why does he love us? Because he loves us. There's no other answer. (laughs) He loves us because he loves us because he loves us. He sees through all the filth and the grime of your life. He sees all the untidiness and the mess of it. All the things that make a church unattractive and undesirable. He sees through all of that and he sees his people whom he loves. And he still loves us. In spite of it all. And that's what we need, isn't it? Isn't that what we need? We need to to know that God loves us in spite of what we are. In spite of all the things that we've done. And all the failure of our lives. We need to know that God loves us. You know, when, you, when you come across someone who is in trouble or facing a big problem, an illness or a bereavement or some other problem, uh, my experience is that people in that situation value the unconditional love of friends and family above all things. They may not solve the problem, but they value the unconditional love uh, of friends and family. Well, how much more for the Christian to know that God loves them? That God loves you in the midst of all your trials. That he loves the gates of Zion. And that's what comforts and strengthens us. Whether as an individual personally suffering or as a church that faces many struggles Uh, in a cultural environment that's increasingly hostile to the church, to know that God still loves his people, loves the gates of Zion. You know, and where do we see God's love? And we do see it. We have an advantage over the Old Testament saints, I think. We see it in what God is willing to give for the people of God. Because he's given us his one and only son. It's amazing how many people I've met who go to church uh, who don't seem to grasp this. That you see the love of God not in your feelings. Because your feelings are up and down, aren't they? You just don't trust your feelings. Don't, please, don't trust your feelings. Because <laughs> our feelings are up and down. My feelings are up and down all the time. Don't trust your feelings. They don't tell you anything about God's love. Where do you see God's love? Turn to the Bible. You see Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how we know. Keep looking at Jesus on the cross. Well, such a glorious city uh, is founded by God and loved by God. And that brings a great response from the people. Verse Three, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of our God. Glorious things of you are spoken, city of our God. So, eight years ago, our daughter Katie got married. I remember the day before the wedding. 
We had the rehearsal. And uh, all the ushers, the best men, there were two of them, were there. The, the bridesmaids, five of them. They were all, and that, the evening before, they were so excited. <laughs> they couldn't stop talking. And, they, and the poor woman who's uh, uh, trying to, to walk us, the administrator's trying to walk us through the, the process, had a hard time keeping everybody quiet. Because um, everybody's jumping around. <laughs> and uh, this person was trying to organize us. But that's what happens when something great is happening. People get very excited about it. You can't, you can't hold them down. And they start crying out and they start talking, chattering. Well, here it is applied to the city of God. The great thing about the city of God is God established it, God loves it. And what do the people do? They say glorious things of you are spoken. People start speaking about the, the glorious things about this Zion. They start talking about it, how wonderful it is. And amazing, they're jumping around, they're excited. They can't hold themselves down. Glorious things of you, thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. And it's one of the things that ought to excite us week by week as we gather together to meet for worship. We get that sense of how great and glorious is Zion that we are part of. You know, when, when Katie was very young, we had a surprise trip to Disneyland in Paris. And, uh, People get very excited about that, don't they? <laughs> and uh, kids get very excited about these sort of things. Or people get very excited about great sporting achievements, and uh, you know, especially if you're there. I know some folks who were at uh, on Super Saturday on in the Olympic Games in 2012, and uh, they say, "I was there when Mo Farah blast, blasted everybody away," and uh, they'd be able to say, "I was there." And they're excited about it. But that's nothing compared to the excitement, the, the joy, the sense of anticipation of being part of Zion, the city of our God. And it causes us to speak of the glory of the city, of the plans and purposes of God, all the things that he has, has got in store for us, the wonderful love of God himself and what he's willing to do for uh, her, his city. I'll just ask you this evening, are you, exci- are you excited? I know it's a not a very Presbyterian way of putting things, but are you excited about Zion, the, you know, the church of Jesus Christ? Are you excited about being part of it? Of being part of something that God is doing that will last forever? And when we have these occasions, when we, we gather together, does it not thrill you to uh, the thought of it as Saturday evening approaches and you're thinking, tomorrow I'm going to be with God's people? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. So it's, uh, it's God's city. Here's the second thing. It's a city of new birth. A city of new birth. Uh, you see this in verses 4 through to 6. And uh, you can see that in the way that in each verse, the idea of people being born is mentioned. So let's just read it. Among those, those who know me, I mention Rahab in Babylon. Behold, Philistia, Tyre, and with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. Verse 6. 
the Lord records as he registers the peoples, this one was born there. See this idea of being born there, of belonging there? And, uh, you know, what does it mean that, that his people are born there? Well, one of the things it means is that these people, for these people, this city, in the profoundest sense, is home for them. Uh, and that's such an important concept. This city is your home. I, uh, people ask me where I'm, uh, usually ask me where I come from. Some, for some reason, people, some people think I'm Irish. <laughs> you would never think that, but you know, some people do. Um, are you from Northern Ireland or something? And they ask me where I'm from, and of course, there's, there are a couple of ways I can answer that. Um, one is to say, uh, usually what people mean is, where, where do you live? And I, the answer is Solihull, of course. Um, and then, but then he wants to say, well, but where are you from? <laughs> you know, that's a different question. Where do you live is different from where, where are you from? And, uh, of course, the real answer is I come from Ayrshire in Scotland. And, uh, you know, sometimes pull people's leg and say I'm a missionary to England, um, which is true. Uh, and this home here in Solihull uh, isn't really my home because I was born and grew, and grew up in Ayrshire in Scotland. Um, but none of that is about where your true home is for a Christian. Uh, because a Christian's true home is with God in Zion. And each verse has something to say about this. Uh, if you look at verse 4, first of all, uh, you see that this city is a, a city from, uh, into which, from which, well, it's a city to which people from many ethnic backgrounds uh, come to know God. Do you see that? Uh, the people look, look at the places that are mentioned. Rahab, or Egypt, is probably what Rahab is. Uh, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, uh, all of these different places. Uh, what's striking about all of those places is none of them is Israel. None of them is, in the, pro- is the promised land. Uh, these are Gentile places. But those people from those areas, are gathered into the, uh, this si- uh, city. And God's purpose in building this city is to build a people for himself uh, that is not just about ethnic Israel, but it's actually about the world being gathered into this city. You know, we, I'm sure all of you, if you're from different parts of the world, you love where you come from. And you're rightly so. You know, I, I'm being a Brit, so I'm, I'm proud of the fact that our passport says, you ever read the front of your passport? It says, his Brit, well, the new ones will say, His Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State requests and requires in the name of His Majesty to allow the bearer to pass freely without let or hindrance. You know, it kind of feels good, doesn't it? The king says, I have to pass. <laughs> So let me pass. You know, you kind of burst with pride at your status under the king. And, uh, well, maybe, I, maybe you don't, but I do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as you approach the immigration official, as you're going to Disneyland in Florida or something, you think, his Britannic majesty has sent me and says, I am to pass, to go to Disneyland. <laughs> but what's the distinguishing mark of somebody 
who is born in Zion. Verse 4. They know God. They know God. Not just believing that there's a God out there. Not just a distant God who you know like you know the king. You know, So I know the king, but I don't know him personally. I've never met him. I've seen him drive past me a couple of times in my life. Uh, but I don't actually know the king, and he doesn't even no idea who I am. Uh, why should he? And it's not just that uh, these people are religious. Uh, they attend church, and therefore somehow they get this idea, well, if I go to church, then maybe I can say that I know God. Uh, it's not that at all. They, you know, they know God. They, they have a, a relationship to God. They have personally come into uh, fellowship with God. They have been restored to Him. They've been reconciled to Him. And now they live in the light of that relationship. Like you've got married and you now your life is never the same again because you've always got this other person in your life. So with a, when you become a Christian, you're never the same again. You're never alone again. You're with God. And this is the the definition of eternal life, isn't it? This is what Jesus said in John chapter 17. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That knowing God is is the essence of eternal life. And it's in Zion that you know God. You know, sometimes, having worked in industry, uh, I spent many years in industry before I was in ministry, and uh, one of the things that regularly came up was the the degree of scorn uh, about the idea that advancement in your career was determined not by what you know, but who you know. You know, for everybody who didn't seem to be making progress, it really mattered what you knew, and you kind of resented the fact that you, what you knew didn't seem to get you anywhere. But then there were some people who seemed to have the right sort of connections and seemed to be able to rise up the food chain in the company. And, uh, and there's, a, you know, there's this kind of cynicism about that. Well, here's the thing. In the kingdom of God, it is all about who you know. It is None of it is about what you've done or what you've achieved or anything like that. It's all about who you know. Do you know God? Do you know God or not? And if you don't know God, you cannot be said to have been born into the kingdom, into Zion. Not yet. The second thing about this birth is that it's a sovereign act of God. And you can see that in verse 5. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her for the Most High himself will establish her. It's described in terms of... Zion is is described again in terms of the people that are born into it. But at the end of the verse, it's God who establishes the city um, that is made up of people born into it. And so this act of building uh, these people is God's alone. And this is a great truth about salvation, about eternal life. That it's never a matter of personal decision to enter the kingdom of God. Your decision will follow, but it's, it's not actually about that. Fundamentally, it is never about your personal decision. 
Being born, just like being born into the world. It's, it, you don't decide to be born one day. You're sitting in your mother's womb. You say, aha, it's, it's time, time for me to come out now. You don't say that. You have no, tr- no control over it. The baby's not involved in the discussion. You, it may be planned by the medics around you, but uh, the baby doesn't have a say in the matter. <laughs> the baby just comes out when he or she comes out. So being born into the city of Zion is something that happens to you. It is not something you choose to do. And so if you are someone who is sitting here today and you think that you belong to the city of God because you have chosen to come to church or to follow Jesus or something else, then please think again. You need something to happen to you first. You need God to come to you. You need Jesus to come to you. You need the Holy Spirit to come to you. And how does he come to you? And for this we need to see how it is that he establishes and builds his church. And how does he do that? He does it through his word. The triune God takes the word of God and implants it in people's hearts and gives them life by the Spirit. And something happens to them. And of course, the, you know, the, foundational, the foundations of this building that's being built is, of course, the, the foundation of apostles and prophets in the Word of God. So I ask you this evening, is, has there been a sovereign work of God in your life? Has God come to you and convicted you of your need of him? Has he filled you with desire to know him, as in verse 4, such that you're willing to sacrifice anything to gain him. And that in itself is a transforming work of God. God is doing that work to make you want him. But it's God who who does it. So it's a sovereign act of God. And the third thing about this birth is that when you're born in this city, God himself registers and records you. Do you see that in verse 6? The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. And I think it's like he has this big book. I say it's like this, so I don't know if it's actually, actually like this. It's like he has this big book. And he gets a scribe to write in, in indelible ink, uh, Joe Bloggs, this one was born here. And everybody, everybody can see it. Nobody can rub it out. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? Your name is written into the book. That God writes it in with indelible ink and you cannot be removed from that book. And everyone who is born into the city is written in and there are no new births that God does not know about. He writes them all down. He has a record of all of them. He knows them all. So that's an encouraging thing, a, a comforting thing for any Christian who is suffering and struggling in life to remember this. My name is written in the book of life. And I can survive anything because I can't be taken out of that book of life. God knows your name. He knows you through and through. He loves the gates of Zion. He loves the people of Zion. He never forgets them. So we have this picture painted of a city that's inhabited by people who know God, who have been... Uh, established by God, who are known by God. 
And this leads us to our final point, and it's this. This is a city full of life and joy. A city full of life and joy. Seen in the final verse, singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. Now, much as I like the word dancers in that last verse, I think it's more likely to be musicians or players. That's a translational issue. It's not about dancers. But whatever it's saying here, um, we need to reflect on the fact that, uh, that where the singers and musicians are brought in, there is, is a time of great joy. And that's what's been reflected in the image that follows this idea of a spring, of springs. All my springs are in you. A spring, what's a spring? It's a, not the bendy thing. <laughs> you get in car suspensions. No, the spring is the, the spring of water that flows from the ground up. And it seems like the water's coming from nowhere. And it's a figurative picture of the joy of the Christian life. It makes me think of uh, Jesus teaching, of, uh, the woman, teaching the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 14. And he speaks about the water that comes from the well uh, and another water. And he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. So there is in the person who has been born into that city, into God's city, into the true church of Jesus Christ, the kind of life that cannot be suppressed. That this life will bubble up out of you. You cannot keep this life in a bucket. You can't hide it in a cupboard. It's like a never-ceasing flow of water that cannot be contained in a cupboard or anything else, but simply flows out and it cannot stop. You see, there's no hiding eternal life in the, in the city of God. You can't hide the spring of joy. And one of the practical signs of its presence is that insatiable desire to praise and worship God with God's people. And hence the mention of singers and players. It expresses itself most clearly when the people gather to sing and to play music before the Lord. See, the occasions that we set apart like this on Sundays are not simply to be kept as another set of rules. When life is present... These occasions become opportunities for the outflow of the praise and joy that is in our hearts because of the life that we have. It is like a spring that cannot be stopped. So the city of God, glorious city, whatever else may be happening in the world, whatever else may be happening in your life, this is the thing that God's doing. Something that will last forever, the city of God. Have you been born into it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful picture of Zion, city of our God. Thank you that we are part of it, if we are. 
And we pray you'd help us to seek to know you better so that we may exude the joy that is ours as we gather to worship. Come and be amongst us. And for those who maybe haven't, are not certain whether they're born yet into the, the city, oh Lord, act sovereignly, we pray. Come and bring life for Jesus' sake. Amen.